All right. Well, last Sunday, we finished a nine-month, can you believe that? Nine-month study of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to begin a a new sermon series from the book of Daniel. Uh, The Lord put a burden on my heart, as best I could tell, uh, to preach through the book of Daniel back in April when I was away on a retreat. Um, One of the things you may not know is that at least twice a year I go away um, in the woods, isolated, no cell phone signal, um, and I take time to pray and wait on the Lord. And there's a lot of that time where I'm sitting there with my Bible and a journal and just saying, Father, um, I need you to help me to know what, what are you doing in this church? What are you up to? Where, where, do, where do you want to speak to us? Where do you want to shepherd us, right? Because my job as a pastor isn't to bring my agenda to the table, right? It's simply to hear from the Lord and then seek to join you in following him and lead you in following him. So, so when I was away in April, the Lord put a burden on my heart uh, to preach through the book of Daniel. But before we dive into Daniel, I want to seize this transition between sermon series uh, to explain, I'm going to take a little time to do this here, why we normally preach through entire books of the Bible, front to back, in a series of expositional sermons, okay? That's not the case in every church. There are different approaches to preaching, different convictions about how you should speak, what should be shared, how you should preach, etc. Um, so I want you to understand the reasons that for the most part, we normally preach series of messages through books of the Bible, front to back, expositionally. Okay, and if you think expositional, what? Yeah, don't worry, I'll explain what that word means, okay? But I, I want to help you understand why we do that so you don't take it for granted. And so when people ask you, well, hey, well, what's your church do on Sunday morning? You know, that you can say something beyond, well, it's cool, man. I hope it's cool. I think it's cool. Um, but I want to help you know what to say and, and, and not take for granted what you experience here. Okay? So, three reasons why we preach normally expositional sermons moving through books of the Bible. All right, so here we go. Reason one we preach expositional sermons or sermons that, that exposit or unpack Scripture because what we need the most, church, are not the musings of man, but the words of God. Not the musings of man, but the words of God. All right? I, I love how um, Mike Bullmore, who's a teacher of mine years ago, defined an expository sermon, a sermon that unpacks scripture. He said it this way, an expository sermon that gives us the, the words of God, not just the musings of man, is a sermon where the content, the content and the intent content and the intent of scripture is the content and intent of the sermon. Okay, I hope that makes sense. The goal, my goal whenever I preach here behind this pulpit, is that the content, what's in here, and the intent, the goal, God's goal in giving it to us would be the content and goal of my sermons and our preaching. All right, there's a world of difference between a sermon that quotes the Bible to support what the preacher is trying to say and a sermon that unpacks the Bible to explain what God has already said. Those are different. God's words are inerrant. 
Mine are not. God's words are infallible. Mine are not. (laughs) Okay, my words and your words are going to pass away on the day we die. God's do not because they're eternal. They're unchangeable and and they're the only source of spiritual life for the soul of man. What, What did Jesus say? John 6, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? Only you, you have the words of eternal life. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the Lord says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, Kingsway, God didn't give us his word to back up the preacher or support the preacher. He is the preacher. He is the preacher. We gather on Sundays that the word of Christ might dwell in us richly. And and he uses, Jesus uses human people preachers like me to do that but but what am i i'm a jar of clay i'm a jar of clay this is the treasure this is the treasure all right we we preach expositional sermons because what we need the most are not the musings of man but the words of god all right second second reason we preach through books of the bible we don't just preach expositional sermons we're unpacking the text we preach through books of the bible because it helps us understand god's word in the context in which it was originally written. All right, how many of you had an experience this week, or maybe just in the last couple of weeks, where you said something and then you, somebody else took what you said completely out of context? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Yeah, some of you are like thinking of situations, but the person's sitting next to you, so you're trying to, you know, hand up, subtle. I want Matthew to see, but not now. You know, okay, well, well I get it. You know, just imagine, what, what if... Um, I was thinking of this scenario, hypothetical, but, you know, somebody comes up to me and says, Matthew, I can't believe you just told um, your son to smack his little brother on the forehead. Did did I hear you? I mean, you need some work as a dad. Good dads don't tell sons to smack other sons on the forehead. Well, what if you then learned (laughs) that a giant mosquito had actually landed on the little guy's forehead and it was carrying Zika virus. And it was because of that that I told my middle child to smack his younger brother on the forehead. Well, suddenly the intent of my words changes. What you thought was abusive parenting might have been smart parenting. Okay, the context changes it, all right? And God's word is really no different. Context matters. Context matters. It's, it mattered in Ephesians. It's going to matter big time when we look at Daniel. You know how much trouble people get in the book of Daniel for taking a verse, they just sort of pick it out with like a pair of tweezers and look at it and say, I think this means that's bad. <laughs> that's bad because God puts his word in a context. So, so I just wanted to share two more examples of this from Ephesians because we're a little more familiar with that at this point. Uh, just imagine this. Say an angry husband approaches you. 
and he throws his Bible down on the table and he, and he points to Ephesians 5.24 and he says, see, Paul says it right there, right there, Williams, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. I told my wife she better get in line. She is not getting in line. I am in your office, pastor, so that you can tell her to get in line. Well, actually, I don't think you get it. Because the very next verse says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, two verses later, Paul says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Context matters. Right, or let's say all you remember from Ephesians is 4.26. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. All right. I need to work on not being sinfully angry. Okay. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Crazy driver. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Eat your broccoli. Don't be angry. Okay. You know what? En- enough with this. I, there is no way I'm ever going to be not angry. And you come to me. Well, for starters, you've taken that verse completely out of context. Why? Well, because Paul also writes verse 32 of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brother, perhaps in context, the best approach is not to say, don't be angry, don't be angry, don't be angry. But, but rather to take some time for us to talk about the kindness that God has shown you in Christ. And as you dwell on his mercy toward you and you recall his lavish patience with you, and we talk about that, that suddenly the truth of verse 20, 32 helps you obey the previous command. Don't be angry. What am I doing? Context. Context. God gives us his word in a context. You lose sight of the context, you won't understand the word. Okay, context matters. That's the second reason we preach through books of the Bible and don't just, for the most part, pick out a verse and talk about that because we need to see where it fits, where it belongs. God's words have a context. All right, here's the third reason. All right, we preach through books of the Bible, typically in a series of expositional sermons, because it forces us to grapple with the whole counsel of God's word and not avoid difficult passages. (laughs) Okay? All right, some disclosure here. Daniel has a boatload of really difficult passages. Um, there's part of me that thinks, Williams, this is preaching suicide to try this book. You know, let me just give you a little test here. Um, if you were going to preach a sermon, which text would you choose? I'm going to give you two options. Okay, one, Psalm 23, one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or, Daniel 8, 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, <laughs> But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. All right? I'm not meaning to make light of God's word, but you read that and you think, oh my. Um, Maybe we'll just avoid chapter 8 and 
lion's den. Yeah, 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 lion's den, right? Well, no, no. (laughs) The reason we preach through books of the Bible expositionally and from front to back is so that the preacher can't and the church can't avoid the difficult passages. Why does that matter? What matters because all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, not just the one on your refrigerator. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful for what? For teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Church, we need to hear the whole counsel of God because the whole counsel of God is inspired by God, all right? So that means Daniel 8.8 isn't less inspired than Psalm 23.1. The, the human authors might be different, and they are, King David, Daniel, but the divine author is the same. It's the same. Same author, God. And it's his love and his wisdom and his knowledge and his care for us that ensures that there's food for the soul on every single page of this word every page, okay? Think of it this way. A spiritually healthy intake of scripture is no different than a physically healthy intake of food. Now, some of you are thinking, Williams, check it out. I don't eat any variety at all. I am on like the pizza diet, and I am the picture of health. Well, we will blame that on the fact that you were probably in your 20s, (laughs) all right? What do we know from our doctors? That a physically healthy variety of food is critical in the long run to physical health. Well, folks, in the same way, a spiritual variety of food where we are gleaning from and studying all the different places and genres and authors and passages all across God's word, the easy, the hard, everything in between, we need all of that if we're gonna be spiritually healthy followers of Christ. All of it's inspired by God and all of it has value. I I love how Psalm 19.10 says, speaking the words of God, they are more to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold. I I wonder, just to talk to some of you young people here for a minute directly, if if I, because I do this because I think most of you are broke, if, if, I, if I gave you a rock, like a big old rock, and I said, in the middle of this rock is solid gold, and I handed you a, a chisel and a hammer, and I said, um, whatever you can get out of this is yours. Just keep it. How many of you would take like two wax, whack, whack, you know, two little rocks crumble off? <sighs> I am so done with this. I am so done with this. You know, two wax. I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, forget it. I'm on to something else. Keep your gold. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. What would you do? Well, the smart ones among you would pay each of your friends $20 to join you and take turns, right? You get a little business going. But the point is, you would persevere. You would persevere. You would work hard day and night till you got that gold. When the, when the Lord says his word is more precious than gold, He is seeking to direct our hearts, gird up our strength, and say, persevere in understanding it and applying it, because it's valuable. And I want you to know there are sections in Daniel where it's going to take more than two whacks, okay? And I don't want you to be surprised, and I don't want you to lose heart, and I want us to remember that all of God's word is more to be desired than fine gold, fine gold. 
right? We want to slow down and mine it carefully. Mine it carefully. So, why do we preach through, typically, series of sermons moving from front to back of a book of the Bible, expositionally, where we're looking at the verse in context? Okay, three reasons, right? Because we need not the musings of man, but the words of God. Because we want to understand God's word in the context in which he gives it to us. And because we don't want to just wrestle with the easy passages. Okay, that's why I'm really excited, in part, to jump into Daniel. So, so let me just take a few minutes now, if you, if you haven't been able to tell already. This sermon's a little bit different. This is more of an introduction to the whole. So we're going to just cover a couple different points to get us ready for the whole series. So I want to answer the question now, why the book of Daniel? Why the book of Daniel? Why, if this is our conviction, that on the whole we want to have series of expositional sermons that move through a book of Scripture front to back, why did we choose the book of Daniel for this time in this church? All right, well, on, on one level... Folks, it's an extension of what I shared earlier about our need for the whole counsel of God. Okay, what do I I mean by that? Well, I mean that it's good to rotate through various genres and various sections of Scripture. So, theoretically, I could spend the next seven years preaching Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First Corinthians, you know, we could just go that way, okay? Well, I don't think that's as helpful as moving between different kinds of Scripture regularly. So, so for example, I think it's, there's wisdom in moving from a gospel like Mark to an epistle like Ephesians, or from an epistle like Ephesians to an Old Testament narrative book of prophecy like Daniel. We, we need wisdom passages like Proverbs. We need poetry sections like the Psalms. We, we need end times passages like Revelations. We need the, the warnings from the minor prophets. It's all relevant, or as Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whatever was written, whatever, not just Genesis 1-1, whatever was written, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might in the present have Okay, so one of the reasons that I wanted us to look to Daniel is because I thought it was high time for us to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Okay, we've, we've been through a number of New Testament books the last few years. But there's another reason. And I'm going to spend most of my time on this because this is by far the most important reason. For preaching through Daniel, church, and that is the culture that we live in. The culture that we live in. So we need to think about this with me for a little bit here. All right, an expository sermon should by definition unpack or expound the truth of Scripture, not the ins and outs of a particular culture. I'm not up here to be a cultural commentator. I'm not, all right? And yet... A faithful expository sermon isn't finished until it takes the truths of Scripture, okay, until it takes them and applies them to our present-day situation. So what do I mean by that? I mean that when God writes to his people in a particular historical context, we need to understand what is he trying to say to them. The starting point is not, what do I feel like this means? That is deadly. Don't start with that. We start with what is God trying to say in its original context to those people? 
And then we say, Lord, what are the timeless biblical principles in what you said to them that apply just as much to me today? Okay, that's what we're trying to do. A sermon should be centered on Christ because the Bible is centered on Christ. But Jesus Christ and his word has a lot to say about the culture we live in. Okay? Especially environments where it's hard, really hard, to remain faithful to God. I think we're living in one of those cultures. I do. And I would argue that it's gotten harder in the last 50 years, not easier. So what do I mean by that? Well, I wasn't alive in the 1950s. But from what I've read, studied, heard, learned... I think it's fair to say that, you know, some aspects of Christian morality, what God says is right and wrong, were still largely embedded in American culture back then. Though, though, that does not mean that a majority of Americans were following Christ back then. Okay, why do I say that? Well, church, it's because following certain rules doesn't make you a Christian. Okay? Repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. That's what makes you a Christian, right? If, if you do that today, if you say, Lord, I have broken your law, would you please forgive me? I trust your death on the cross that I might be forgiven of my sin. You died so I don't have to die. Help me to follow you. Friend, you pray that prayer and today something supernatural will happen inside of you. Something supernatural that only God can do. And when that happens, you can be assured of the Father's love, not because of your obedience, but because Jesus Christ has obeyed for you. And when that happens, when we receive the gift of God's love through the gospel, a gift that we don't deserve and could not earn, suddenly that gift of God's love that comes to us through Christ, and and even today it could come to you through Christ, friend. If you repent and believe, that gift makes us want to obey Him. We don't obey in order to be loved. We obey because we are loved. And when that happens, we realize that there can be no such thing as a Christian who's not obeying God. And I would argue that there are times in history when doing that, when obeying God, certain cultures at certain times, that gets hard, especially hard. It's never easy but it can get really hard. And in the 1950s, I don't think it was quite as difficult as it is today because a majority of the culture back then still, I I think, largely concurred with what the Bible says is right and wrong, especially in this realm of sexual ethics. Right, so in the last 60 years, something drastic has happened. We've tossed out pretty much every moral foundation and replaced it with individual autonomy. What do I mean by that? I mean that what I believe is right is right. And what I think is wrong is wrong. And who are you to tell me otherwise? So you're waiting for sex until you're married? That's weird. You believe marriage is between one man and one woman for life? What planet are you from? That's what you hear. That's what you feel. 
right? On, on just the, the sexual ethics front alone, there's this growing chasm between following our culture and following Jesus. Now, please hear this. Truth be told, those two have never pulled the same way. Ever. Okay? Matthew seven thirteen. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. But I think that in recent decades, friends, the, the perceived gap between those two paths has gotten larger, not smaller. And as a result, I believe God wants us as a church to give some serious attention to what it means to be a faithful Christian in a secular culture. What's it mean to be a faithful Christian in a secular culture? And as we do that, to wrestle with whether or not we can have any hope for the future given we live in a world that seems to be just getting increasingly wicked. Okay, well, what's it mean to be a faithful Christian in a secular culture? And given that culture, can we have any hope for the future, given our world seems to just be getting increasingly wicked? And I'm not just talking here about sexual ethics. Okay, I mentioned that earlier, but, but it's, the problem's bigger than that, all right? I'm talking about Christians who are persecuted for their faith. Or children who are who are murdered by terrorists or, or women who are abused by guerrilla armies or, or, or barrel bombs that are follow, falling on hospitals in Syria. I mean, it, just all the things, all the unspeakable atrocities that fill the evening news. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Living in a world that seems to be getting increasingly wicked, going from bad to worse. And in that world, that world where we're uncertain, how do I be a faithful Christian in a secular culture? How do I have any hope for the future given the evening news? In that world, Daniel is tremendously helpful. Tremendously helpful, okay? So open your Bible to Daniel. I'm going to preach on the whole of chapter 1 next Sunday, but this morning I want to simply read the first four verses just to set the stage and connect Daniel's world to our world. Daniel writes, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Okay, big picture, what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, the Jewish people are being taken into exile. Taken into exile. Away from the land of Israel to the land of Babylon. And the fact that Babylon is not an easy place to be the people of God is indicated in Scripture by this phrase. Babylon is a city in the land of Shinar. The fact that this is not an easy place 
This is going to be a hard place to be a Christian. To follow Christ is seen in that little phrase, Babylon is in the land of Shinar. Now why is that significant? It's significant because the plain of Shinar was the exact place in Genesis 11 where mankind built the Tower of Babel. And what was that about? That was about in Genesis 11, human beings, you and me, all of us, seeking to make a name for ourselves instead of bowing down before the one true God. So when Daniel, writing to his fellow Jewish exiles, says, this this exile took place and we got brought to the land of Shinar, that sends off alarm bells to people who know their Bible. Right? This is not going to be an easy place to be a Christian. Whenever Shinar shows up in Scripture, this isn't the only place, it's always bad news. Always. Jo- Joyce Baldwin says it this way, okay? It was the place where wickedness was at home and uprightness could expect opposition. Right? Babylon was a godless place. Godless place. In the sense that the Chaldeans didn't worship Yahweh, the one true God. Instead, what do they worship? Gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, iron, and stone. And the chief god of Babylon was Marduk, or Bel. And it's most likely Bel's temple into which Nebuchadnezzar brought these vessels that he took out of Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. Well, what's up with that? Well, that's an act of spiritual defiance. Okay, that is a loud statement that the supposed God of Israel is no match for the God of Babylon. If the articles in your God's temple can be taken into my God's temple, then it means that my God owns your God, and furthermore, I own you. That's what's going on here. And that last point is really important because Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take vessels from the Jewish temple, all right? He took people. Jewish people, right, the best, the brightest, promising young people who, who occupy these positions of spiritual and social, cultural leadership, okay? I rule over your God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saying. I rule over your community. I rule over you. My ways are superior to your ways, and you had better get in line. I want you to think about what it must have been like to be one of those exiles. You know, Babylon was a, it was a beautiful city. It was a powerful city. It was overflowing with the wealth of the nations and the capital of the largest empire in the world. You're separated from your parents. You're separated from your teachers. There's no Jewish rabbi unrolling a scroll and telling you what to do, okay? You're isolated, you're, you're alone, you're, you're immersed in a foreign land filled with foreign gods that, that seem so strange and yet so real all at the same time. You know, you, you start wondering, is, is Yahweh really the one true God? Maybe some of you have, have left your parents' home and moved out or just gone to college and you start having interactions with people outside the church more often and, and, and you realize there's just this whole world out there. And, and part of you starts thinking, am I, 
am I the deluded one missing out? Like, is that where it's at? That's the kind of stuff that's going on here. I emphasize that point, friends, because I'm convinced that what Daniel and his Jewish friends experienced in the 6th century B.C. is not unusual. Okay, they were in exile. And, church, so are we. They were in exile, and so are we, okay? You might live in Midlothian, but but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this world is not your home. It's not your home. My wife and I were talking about that this week. We were sitting at Baker's Crust. I just looked at her and I said, I I can't wait to get home. Why is that? Well, it's not just because life's hard, right? It's, It's because if you're a follower of Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't your home. You know, if somebody asks you, where do you live? What do you do? Well, you whip out an address, okay? But if as a follower of Christ, somebody asks you, where's your home? Well, friend, there's a part of you. Don't be coy and have an attitude. Well, it's with Jesus. Be sensitive. If they're asking for your physical address, give it to them. But there's a part of you that in your heart should always hear in that question, oh, my home. Yeah, it's not here. It's in heaven. I'm in exile. I'm a pilgrim. And everything broken around us should remind you that you're not home yet. And to the degree it does, praise be to God. Because we have to remember that. We're not home. You know, it would be as crazy, friends, as if you got on 64 West and you're trying to get to West Virginia where my family always went for Thanksgiving holiday and we got to Beckley and we just pulled off at a little gas station for a bathroom break and we just stopped. Never went any further. And started telling ourselves and sitting in the car, hey, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. No, no, we're... We're pilgrims. We're going somewhere. We're exiles. We're not home yet. If you're a follower of Christ, that's you right now. To be a faithful Christian in exile in this culture is exceedingly difficult. There are temptations and pressures to compromise. And if you don't compromise, okay, then there's a temptation to simply disengage and retreat in a tidy little Christian community bubble and pretend that it, nothing's going on out there. Certainly nothing unspeakably bad that would shake my fear and faith, you know? <laughs> and just try to ride out the storm. You know, you know say, say you don't give in to the temptation to compromise or the temptation to isolate, but, but then if you pass those two, you still got this whole temptation to fear and despair. Right? Like, like, given the wickedness in the world, in fact, I'm not home, I'm alone, I feel isolated, I'm in exile, like, how do I have any hope for the future? You know, it's, it's easy for me to worry, quite frankly, about the sort of world that my grandchildren are going to grow up in. 
right? Or I watch the elections and I, and I lose heart for the future. Okay, so, so all that to say, when you're in exile, compromise is tempting. Isolation is alluring. Fear is, as it were, knocking at the door. Isolation, compromise, fear. I, I, I see those things in the church at large. I sense them in my heart. I see them in our church. But, but even saying that, even saying that we're an exile, we're exiles. If you're a follower of Christ, you're an exile. Even just being honest about that starts to bring a measure of hope. Okay, well, why? Why? Well, because we're not the first variety of God's people to be in exile. <laughs> okay, it's not like, oh, well, you know what? Wait till 21st century America comes around. Then we're going to see what exile looks like. No. No, praise God. It's not the first time, all right? The Bible's full of exiles. Start to finish. Adam and Eve, exiled from Eden. Jacob, exiles in Egypt. Daniel, exile in Babylon. First century Christians, exiles in the Roman Emperor and Roman Empire. Okay, it's, it's always been part of what it means to follow Christ in a fallen world. You sign up to follow Christ, you have signed up to be an exile, to be a pilgrim. And in every situation, every story of exile that we have in this book, God came through. God came through, okay? He saw he heard, he had mercy, he rescued, and while his people were waiting for all those things in their exile, he spoke. He spoke. I mean, this is remarkable. He spoke comforting words to exiles. He spoke encouraging words to exiles, life-giving words, challenging words to exiles, designed to turn our gaze away from the things of this world and toward the kingdom of God. He spoke. He spoke and he promised to protect his people, to preserve his people, to rescue his people till he brings us home. And God used the book of Daniel, we're going to see this over and over again, to help Daniel and his fellow exiles remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of exile. And friends, I think God wants to use this book today in our lives, in our church, to help us remain faithful to the Lord in our exile. No matter what point in your life, you're most painfully aware of that fact. God wants to help you. He's, he's eager to teach you how to be a God-fearing exile. All right? How to seize every experience of brokenness in you and around you as a chance to trust and exalt in the one who rules all things. And I want you to notice, if you didn't already, very quickly, that what seemed like bad luck for the Jewish exiles was not an accident and actually the hand of God. Look at verse 2. We'll come back to this next Sunday, but look at verse 2 right now. What's it say? And the Lord gave. Oh my, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in charge. He thought he was hot stuff. God says, you don't have a clue, pal. You don't have a clue, 
all right? The exile was the Lord's doing. It was, it was part of God's sovereign plan to purify his people and prepare them to be with him. It was part of God's plan. It was God's doing, and that alone helps us remain faithful, even when we have these intense pressures to compromise, to isolate, or, or to give in to fear. Da- Daniel 11.32 really captures the entire message of this book. Okay, look at this. Speaking of the kings and kingdoms of this world. The kings and kingdoms of this world. He, they, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That's Daniel, right? The people who know their God, given everything I've talked about, being in exile, cultural struggles, shall stand firm and take action, all right? If I was gonna summarize what I believe the Lord wants to do in us between now and the end of January in this book, I would say it this way, okay? He wants to replace compromise with conviction, isolation with engagement, and fear with trust. Those things, all right? Those three things. And as I have read back and forth through the book of Daniel, probably seven or eight times by now, all right? Several themes have become crystal clear that drive those changes home in our life, okay? And I wanna read these to you quickly. We're gonna come back to these week after week, all right? First, hear this. God is in charge of everything. I can just go sit down right now. (laughs) God's in charge of everything in a way that's stronger, deeper, and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Second, God's ways normally don't make sense to us. (laughs) Because, thank you, Beth, his timetable is crazy different than ours. Third, God's final triumph over every evil power is guaranteed, promising salvation for the righteous and judgment for the wicked. Fourth, God calls his people to testify, hear that, to the reality of his kingdom long before we see it in all its fullness. To testify to its reality long before we see it in all its fullness. And lastly, all of human history is moving toward the fulfillment of the purposes of God. All right? For those reasons, I've decided to call this sermon series Dominion. Dominion. Okay? Because over and over again, Daniel acknowledges that it sure looks like the kings and kingdoms of this world are controlling everything, including God's people. And yet, time after time, Daniel never fails to assure us that they are not in charge. God is. Their dominion is temporary and God-given, by the way. God's dominion is eternal and not given to him. He owned it in the beginning. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than Daniel 7, 13, where Daniel sees a vision of Jesus. Listen to this. Dominion. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him. 
Not to you, friend. Not to your spouse. Not to your crazy kid, a relative, a boss, a president. To him. To him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Whoever gets elected in November, at best they have four years. That's nothing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's your God. If you're a follower of Christ and exile with me on pilgrimage to glory, that's your God. That's the dominion he has right now. Right now. I can't wait to study this book with you. I, I hope what I've shared this morning has increased your excitement. Um, wrapping up here, I wanted to recommend, I don't always get to do this in a sermon, but I wanted to recommend four books to you, okay? And I think we have some slides of these. The first one, you can grab these in the bookshop. Uh, if we don't have all of them this week, just keep checking back. We'll get more copies. The first one is a book called Awe by Paul Tripp. I read this a number of um, months ago, maybe even close to a year ago now. And what this book does is it takes one of the themes of Daniel, that God is in charge in a way that is more beautiful than we could ever imagine, and just unpacks that. If you find that people are really big, and the voices of men are really loud in your ears, and God and his glory is like really small or in the back corner of the fridge, <laughs> then that's a good book for you, okay? And it, it works with what we see in Daniel. All right, there's two more here. Yep, good. Um, is God really in control by Jerry Bridges? And then the next one, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. These two together are probably my favorite books on understanding, Lord, how do we take what your word teaches about your sovereign control over all things and actually take that and, and, and watch it and see it work down into the gritty details of my suffering. So that, you know, when I wake up and I see that text message from that person, I can trust you. And when I get that diagnosis and I think, nobody's in control. You know, I can quickly remember that, that you are and I can fight for faith to believe that and not stop. Those books can help us with that. Those are themes we'll see in Daniel that they can help with that. All right, and then the last two, we may actually have five here. Yep, thank you, Steph. Christ and Culture Revisited. This is a book by D.A. Carson that's a little bit of a harder read, but he does a great job thinking through how should Christians engage with the secular culture. And then lastly, a book by Kevin DeYoung, What is the Mission of the Church? There's a lot of confusion out there on this topic. What is the church supposed to do in the world we live in? Lots of people have lots of ideas about that. Thankfully, God has an idea too. And he's told it to us in his word. And I love how Kevin DeYoung brings us back to what's our main mission as a church, given the culture we live in. Okay, so, so I want to encourage you to check those out. We're going to tackle roughly one chapter every Sunday, beginning next week with Daniel 1. I want to encourage you to, to read ahead. We're also going to keep posting discussion questions on our blog every week. I'm really excited to begin this series with you. And because, without question, one of the main themes we'll hit over and over again is the reality of the sovereignty of God. As I've said, God's calling us as exiles to trust him. I want us to close this morning by singing a song 
It helps us do just that. So Ben, if you would come on up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, if there's one thing that I think has resonated with us today, certainly with me, it's that it's okay to feel like we're in exile. Because you've promised as much. And I thank you, Lord, that as your people, we can look in your word and see how you cared and sustained and helped and encouraged and equipped exiles like us. I pray you would do that in this book. Lord, I pray that you would show us how to stand firm and how to take action. We thank you that you are worthy of our trust. And we pray as we sing now that you would use even this song to prepare us for all you've got in the book of Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen.